Hello, I'm Jack DeRose, CEO and founder of Colony. And I'm Aaron Fisher, recovering mathematician and co-author of the Colony White Paper. And this is Collectively Intelligent, the podcast in which we hope that if we talk to smart people for long enough, we might eventually say something intelligent. Our guest today is Oren, who used to be with us at Colony, but is now working at Gnosis. And I'm going to ask Oren to introduce himself. Why don't you tell us who you are and what you're working on? Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron uh, and Jack. Hey, everyone. My name's Oren. Like Aaron said, I, I used to work at Colony. I still feel like I do once a week or something like that. I still show off to, to try and contribute as much as I can. But yeah, currently working at Gnosis on a project called Zodiac, which is uh, basically a project for kind of composable DAO tooling. I've been in the space, the Ethereum space, I guess, since since Genesis and kind of really actively involved since 2016 around the DAO, which is uh, when Jack and I first met. And then, yeah, since then, I've kind of worked in a whole bunch of different projects and most of that has been kind of DAO related. So yeah, I guess, I don't know, I'm, I'm obsessed with cool. DAOs and, and can't stop thinking about them. Yeah, great to have you. This is a conversation which is going to be a rather more... Ethereum specific and technical conversation than we habitually have, but hopefully we'll get into plenty of DAO related topics as well that are not purely about the sort of small contracty parts of DAOs, but we'll see how it goes. Just before we had started recording, we'd started to have the interesting conversation already. So thought we should start recording and then this is where we're carrying on from. So we'd started to talk about the newly announced Gnosis chain. And to give Aaron some context on this, because he was like, what's Gnosis chain? Yeah. To which right, Aaron right. said. Yeah, I, I guess it's obviously newly announced, but essentially just Gnosis and XDI kind of proposing to, to do a merger and I guess make XDI a little bit more ambitious. The, I think the, the intent is to essentially have it act in a similar way to Kusama in the Polkadot ecosystem to basically be a, a canary chain for uh, Ethereum mainnet. So it would implement essentially everything that Ethereum mainnet intends to implement, but sometime beforehand to to give things an opportunity to run in a in a much more live environment than what you could get on a traditional testnet. So it's 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 not a testnet. It's it's you know a, a Slightly lower stakes version of mainnet, I guess, is is the intent there. It should maintain, obviously, some of the qualities of uh, XDAI in terms of a, a stable native token and, and low gas fees. And then, yeah, outside of that, you should look to to kind of adopt changes that are that are queued up for mainnet earlier than mainnet, uh, and then probably also look to to push some of the limits in, in terms of potential for scaling so things like potentially pushing gas limits higher and i don't know maybe shard counts would be higher on the uh, on the beacon chain i don't know there's, there's a whole bunch of different potential options there to to try to yeah have it have it just kind of push limits in a way that ethereum mainnet can't because it it needs to maintain a certain level of stability All right. so two things that one is that one of the arguments i'd seen people make in the um xdi discord was that XDAO already fulfills the role of being a sort of canary chain for Ethereum. And that was actually one of the arguments against it, that it already does that. And so, so why would we want it to be something different? The other is that 
I, I think I'd saw as well, seen that the proposal was for it to be a, an F2 shard as well, or am I mis misremembering that? I don't believe it's intended to be a, uh, an F2 shard, but it will, uh, there is an intent to have it bridge very trustlessly between the two. And right. maybe there is a future point at which it could be uh, something like an F2 shard, but the the proposal, uh, the piece relevant piece of the proposal that I've seen with regard to this is that there is an intent to basically build into the validator clients and the kind of validator rules for the, the Gnosis chain or for the Gnosis beacon chain, essentially a, a kind of light, light client for mainnet Ethereum. So it would, part of when you propose a new something, then uh, you would also include the root hash for the current block on Ethereum mainnet. And, and kind of if you do that incorrectly, then that would be, uh, considered a, an invalid block and other validators would build on a different block, I guess. Um, and so it, it should, in theory, provide a very secure bridging mechanism between mainnet Ethereum and, and the Gnosis beacon chain. The other yeah, way, like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I feel like you guys have jumped in at like a very high level of detail and me, I'm going to play the ignorant one for now. I know XDAI right, right. as an as an EVM, so Ethereum compatible chain that uses XDAI as its gas, the DAI as its gas, so dollar dom, uh, pegged, and is a lot cheaper to use, which is why a lot of projects are using it. Whereas Gnosis, I know as a multi-signature wallet with a lot of bells and whistles, and now you're saying that Gnosis has aims beyond just you know, the suite of contracts, but to have run their own chain, which would be this XDAI chain on top of which that XDAI chain is going to evolve in the same way that Ethereum is going to evolve to ETH2. And now you were talking about the methods for bridging tokens between that future version of XDAI and the future version of ETH. Yeah. Did I follow that correctly? Right. right, right. Yeah. And so I think like the, I don't know, there's, a, there's a few pieces to tease apart there. One in terms of like Gnosis being essentially a multi-sig. I think like the Gnosis safe is by far in a way like Gnosis is like most successful product, but there's a whole or the most successful kind of thing that, that Gnosis has built. But Gnosis works on a whole bunch of different projects, kind of internally has has multiple sub teams that all work on different projects that are all various kind of infrastructure layers. Obviously Gnosis kind of stewarded the the open ethereum client after after parity kind of stopped and so one of the one of the kind of core ethereum clients gnosis has been responsible for gnosis protocol is a is a kind of dex aggregation protocol essentially eliminating or kind of mitigating minor extractable value value and that's what's kind of powering the cow swap dex and then uh, obviously like the conditional tokens framework that Omen is built on. Gnosis kind of originally started as this prediction market organization has kind of since transitioned into being more of just kind of a general Ethereum infrastructure, I guess, project uh, or kind of a group of projects. Uh, and then obviously like Zodiac is, is the thing that I've been working on recently. Uh, and kind of all of these sub teams, I think have, I don't know, been diverging or there hasn't been necessarily a kind of clear cohesive mission for uh, for kind of Gnosis as a whole because of these these kind of diverging product lines or, or things that the, the internal teams have been working on. And so, yeah, I think each of the teams now is kind of in the process of, I guess, spinning out into more more kind of standalone entities. And then Gnosis, I don't know, will kind of act as a, as a, a bit of an umbrella over those, uh, help kind of incubate projects and then spin them out. And 
yeah, the the intent here is, I think, just to have this be another thing that the Gnosis DAO, the Gnosis ecosystem, can can kind of incubate and steward. And and yeah, I don't know. It's it seems to align well with with each of the other projects in terms of like they they are all already using XDI, all already kind of deployed to XDI, and so XDI has been a big part of of kind of how we've. I don't know how we've approached you kind know, of making a lot of these things accessible, uh, and so it, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense for Nosis to to I don't know be be involved in kind of stewarding the the future of XDI. and then I think to tease apart the other part of that in terms of well what Jack mentioned about you kind know, of XDI having already been a canary chain, I think that's true to a certain extent, but it has not not really followed Ethereum mainnet's roadmap or like you know it's it's been a proof of authority chain essentially uh proof of stake proof of authority chain so it's like it's different consensus mechanism uh and then it has not necessarily implemented the same changes as ethereum uh, and it definitely hasn't always done so in advance of ethereum looks like my you mean things like stop like 1559 for instance next i didn't deploy 1559 until later than mainnet and so like for it to to effectively be a canary chain those things have to happen in advance of mainnet so that mainnet can get the advantage of seeing it play out in a in a you know properly incentivized environment beforehand i mean that's what test nets are for right well i mean a test net can show you it you can kind of show you how it might behave in theory but the when there's, I guess, real money at stake, the incentives are very different to try to break it, right? The incentives to try to break something on a test net, altruistic, you know, you're doing it because you want to try to break it to improve the protocol. The incentives to break it in production aren't necessarily altruistic. They can be malevolent. You can be trying to break something because you want to break it. They can be because you're trying to, because you're trying to capitalize on something. You're trying to exploit a system. And so they creating an environment where you can all right. Okay. No, I I, I take that point. I, I I understand. But that's so that's the plan from Gnosis side. Do you know who's run, who's behind XDI right now, and what do they think about this idea to merge? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, this is something that I think has it's been an ongoing discussion between both sides for a while. So it's it's certainly not Gnosis trying to. I don't know, in some way, take over XDI. It's, it's I think, mutually beneficial. Right, right, right. a hostile takeover by like, yeah, yeah, a yeah. community, hasn't it? Yeah, so I, I'm not saying, like, Aaron, you're suggesting that, but yeah, there's definitely been some some folks in the community that have suggested something to that effect. And I think, like, the the benefit for, as a community exercise, a project, I, I think there's a, a ton of them. One of them is obviously that Gnosis is incredibly well capitalized and, and willing to deploy a bunch of capital to grow the XDI ecosystem in, in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, and the other is that Gnosis obviously has a, a bunch of experience in projects to to market and having them be very well adopted. In particular, obviously, the SAFE. It's a very different product, but it's it's become very successful. It's, it's the kind of de facto standard for for multi-sig solutions and so i think the combination of the 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 capital that gnosis can bring to the equation and then the experience in in building kind of highly secure systems that are well adopted those two things are are, are a huge boon to the xdi ecosystem yeah i mean i would 
agree. I'm thoroughly in favor, or at least I felt like I was thoroughly in favor of the proposal until a few minutes ago when you framed it as being intentionally as a canary chain. I, I wonder how well that plays with perspective of projects that really don't want to be on a canary chain. They want to be on a, on a real serious chain where serious stuff is expected to happen, not a sort of risky, sort of high risk environment where the express intention is to fuck with it. Yeah. And I think there's, there's probably degrees there, right? So I think it being a canary chain, like doesn't mean it's necessarily intended to be unstable. I think quite the opposite. It, it should still be something that's stable and usable. I think the idea is just the risk tolerance is, is a notch or two higher no, I mean, than what I, you would, I would have say actually, on, on mainnet. You'd actually, it, it's well positioned to be between a testnet and mainnet. Seeing it's like mainnet that there's real money involved in real projects, but unlike mainnet, the because it's a proof of authority chain, it's much easier to coordinate all the validators around some fixes if things do go really bad. So it does make sense to position it between the two from a security standpoint. But it's it's not intended to be a proof of authority chain. Currently, it's not a proof of authority chain. It used to be, oh, but okay. now it's a, it's a delegated proof of stake system. Okay. And it will move to the F2 uh, security model, right? Yes. Yeah, but so it'll essentially will... replicate F2. Right. Yeah, and so, I mean, the the idea there is, again, like not that it should be any less stable than you would expect uh, mainnet Ethereum to be, or not, not in a way that would kind of add a significant amount of risk. I think the idea is to just implement the things that Ethereum mainnet is planning to implement in advance of mainnet so that it can act as a canary in case there's something that wasn't caught in test nets. So I think one of the, there was a recent example of a, of a bug in one of the clients, I think, was it open Ethereum that, that caused, briefly caused a chain split after one of the, one of the recent forks. And so like things like this, where you could have, you could have issues that don't pop up until you've actually put it into into production this this you know if if it these things get activated on gnosis chain a week two weeks before they're scheduled to go live on mainnet it gives you a chance to kind of catch and react to those things before you deploy them on mainnet so why yeah, there's, there's, what was that sorry well if if the if the end result or sort of the target is to be exactly the same as ethereum except with die as a base currency well which which is a currency which runs on Ethereum, why would it remain like, I'm, I'm, I'm almost surprised at how cheap it is to use XDAI. And for me, that's like the main reason to use it right now is that it's cheap. So we can try a bunch of things that will be just prohibitively expensive on mainnet, but there's no reason for it to remain this cheap, especially if it becomes successful and, and attracts a lot more usage, right? I guess. Yeah. I mean, if it, if it ends up having. Well, I guess there's there's two factors to the price, like right. One is the well, there's, there's many more than two factors, but one is like the the price of the the gas token, and then one is the price of gas itself. Uh, and so, if the gas token is stable, then that that variable is kind of removed, and it's really just the the gas price that's influencing it. And so, I don't know, maybe maybe gas prices like skyrocket if if demand for block space goes. goes I mean, as soon as it hits capacity, right? 
right, like, right, right. The fact that, that the base currency is stable makes it easier, maybe makes the, the dynamics easier to analyze because there's not this external factor of the Ethereum price going up, which would have to be countered by the gas price going down instead of, but still, like it doesn't solve the scalability issue. It's just, it, it's right. like an overflow, it's a buffer. When things get too full on mainnet, all these projects move over to Xside because it's still cheap over there. But once it becomes expensive there too, they'd have to move again because, I mean, until right. we've solved scalability, right? That's one of the things that... in the proposal actually is that um, Martin has said, or whoever wrote this, I think it was Martin, that in the midterm, the current practical reality of the, of the one way gas price on, on, uh, X die is, is not sustainable. And actually, interestingly, from the same people that are arguing about the, the, the economic unfairness of this, of, of the proposal are also arguing that the low gas prices on X die is its greatest strength and benefit, despite the fact that even though XDAI almost runs at capacity already, it generates only about $50 a day in gas fees. Those don't seem to be realities that coincide as, as positive outcomes. Can't expect the token to appreciate in value when the gas fees from the chain are very, but so, so presumably that untenable situation of the existing gas prices exists irrespective of whether it becomes Gnosis Chain or not. But is there, a, there's nothing in particular about the new consensus mechanism that would result in it being more or less tenable, right? Right. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the kind of roadmap to scalability on something like Gnosis chain is probably very similar to the roadmap to scalability for Ethereum and Ethereum too. So it's like if yeah, it's you want similar. higher throughput, then yeah, you you add shards or you add rollups or both. Yeah, yeah, there might be some little tweaks where one of the consensus mechanisms can tolerate a higher gas limit per block, but generally you're right. So this is it. Works. Anyway, is yeah, that... I don't know that there has been uh, talk from the, the Aragon team about the Aragon client being able to handle significantly higher gas limits. And so maybe that's a, maybe that's something that Gnosis chain can kind of experiment with as well uh, is pushing gas limits higher. But I, I know that there's uh, a fair bit of criticism to using kind of gas limits as a scaling solution because it just kind of, you know, it increases it's the dangerous. size of the bucket, but yeah, it doesn't. No, it, it can actually, cause fragmentation. Uh, it changes the game theory. Like, there's all kinds of issues. Right. Like, once you hit a certain limit, it doesn't. But uh, what what are you working on in this space? You mentioned the name of what you're working on, and then just went right past it. So yeah, I've been working on uh, Zodiac, which is a, a project that we launched uh, a few months ago, or kind of announced a few months ago, and it's essentially a an attempt to. I don't know, encourage people to use a, a particular design in, in setting up kind of composable DAO tooling. So I guess Zodiac is kind of a, a philosophy for how you might construct kind of composable DAOs. Uh, and essentially, the, the kind of key insight is decoupling the account from the mechanism that controls it. And what I mean by that is like the account being the, the address and the, the thing that kind of 
holds tokens, holds holds funds, controls systems. Like is the is the the owner in in ownable systems, and and the thing that's I guess referenced externally as as like the canonical address for for your DAO. Separating that from the mechanism that controls it. So like most of the existing DAO tooling essentially either couples that account and the logic that control it in one account, like in one in one contract, or in some kind of really tightly linked system of contracts that make it really difficult to essentially like migrate or, or update your governance, your tooling around for, for governance or your decision-making tooling without a wholesale migration from one address to a new one. So as in moving all of your tokens, moving all, updating all of the kind of ownable variables on systems that you control, things like that. And so kind of in doing so creates, I guess, like walled gardens and, and really limits the, I don't know, creates, creates something akin to the kind of platform lock-in that, that a lot of Web2 platforms create. And so... Yeah, the, that that kind of I, I see as a problem in in and of itself. But then uh, the the other thing that I really like about this pattern is that it enables uh, kind of composability of tooling, where you can potentially have the same account controlled by multiple mechanisms at once and use them for specific types of decision making. So, for instance, essentially when when we say account here, what we're encouraging people to use is a, a Nosa safe as their kind of account, and then plug in other mechanisms to control it. So you could have a Nosa safe controlled by a colony and then the colony kind of uses its motions and disputes decision-making mechanism to affect change in the in the safe, essentially to make the safe do things. Um, and the really nice thing with this is that you could have, uh, you know, in that example, you might have multi-sig owners that, that can control the safe and then also have a, a colony that can control it in parallel. The two, the two systems can exist in parallel and maybe you, you, you scope out the permissions of what the multi-sig owners can do so then they have access to a limited subset of functions. Maybe they can only call specific addresses and specific function signatures on those addresses. So you kind of you, you enable some subset of people to do things quickly and then the colony itself to kind of have ultimate control over it. But then maybe there's there's some other mechanisms that some of the functionality that the DAO wants that colony doesn't provide. And so you can plug in yet another module to the safe and, and kind of add that functionality. You know, if you want to add something like the, the rage quit function from Moloch, then we, we have an, an exit module that kind of replicates that kind of functionality. So now people can kind of redeem a token for a share of the safe's assets. And so you can kind of, the idea here is just to make much more composable DAO tooling where you can kind of plug and play, mix and match different different tooling all in kind of one one reasonably cohesive system. And then the, the third thing that it kind of enables that I'm really excited about uh, and I think is kind of most relevant to, to Colony specifically is that it, it enables kind of cross-chain organizations where you could have say a colony deployed on XDAI, control a safe over on mainnet by virtue of having essentially a, a bridge module, a module that kind of talks to the arbitrary message bridge, accepts messages over it and allows that to then control the safe. And so you can imagine kind of DAOs choosing an execution environment like XDAI that's cheap and, and to, to make their decisions, but then bridging those decisions over to mainnet where the DeFi liquidity is or where, you know, the, the NFTs that they want to own are held or whatever it is. And and then I could also imagine kind of a, a future environment where, you know, maybe you have 
a colony on XDI that controls a safe on XDI, a safe on mainnet, a safe on Arbitrum and Optimism and ZK Sync and, and wherever else the safe is deployed and there's kind of suitable bridges. And so these kind of multi-chain, multi-layer organizations, I think, are, are going to become increasingly necessary as adoption of this kind of multi-chain, multi-layer, multi-shard ecosystem starts to proliferate. Okay, I understand. Okay, I mean, like, that is, in that case, that's a huge risk. And I, I can understand the, the logic behind it. I'm just, you know, immediately start thinking of, oh my God, that's complicated to actually pull off. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, so and I, I, that was like a big brain dump. So a perfectly valid response. And yeah, I, I agree. The, the user experience of it, uh, especially right now, is horrendous because, you know, it's essentially mashing together a bunch of contracts that aren't necessarily intended to work together and that there's no UI whatsoever to speak of for actually kind of making the interactions happen between them. So also, yeah, it, it could get pretty complex pretty quickly. I can tell you one thing I immediately thought of when you started mentioning the separating the controller and owner and that. I immediately start to think of the ENS, right? the Ethereum name system where you can own a name like rm.s and then yep. you can set multiple controllers, controller contracts with their own rules and their own levels of permissions on what can be done with them. So yeah, you could have one controller on your, your name that is controlled by some Gnosis safe and it only has the ability to change the IPFS hash in your ENS, but not the payment address, for example. Like that, or right. it's very much that architecture where the, the controlling instances are separate from the owners and can be combined and swapped out. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't realize that you could have multiple controllers on an ENS name. I believe you can. Nice. I know that, that so maybe the app just only exposes the ability to have one then. I mean, obviously, even if it was only one, you could always have that one be a exactly, yeah. kind of proxy thing. It can it implement arbitrary possible. logic, right? So, yeah. Yeah, that's a neat idea. And, and yeah, very similar, very similar concepts. A bit of a sidebar anecdote, but while we're on the topic of ENS, I've got a funny ENS story. I don't know whether I've yeah. talked before. A friend of mine, well, when, when the, the four-letter ENS names were, were released, registered elon.f. Uh-huh. And a few months ago, there was an approach made to him to acquire that, that address via the ENS team. And, oh, uh, interesting. By? Yeah. Sorry? By whom? By, by the notable person known as Elon. Yeah. Okay. Right. So Elon wanted to get the Elon.eth name from your friend. Exactly correct. Now, the person who uh, had acquired this is the biggest troll I know. He's also very, very early Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. And not the biggest Elon fan, you might say. So his response to this was to send, to change the controller of, of Elon.f to 0x000000, etc. And pay for it for another 10 years. <laughs> the the controller or the owner? Sorry, that's it. Yeah, yeah. The owner. The owner. Okay. Change the owner to. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> that's a dick move. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. And, and once people caught on that this was happening, people from all over the net started adding funds. So it's been extended 
till quite far to the future at this oh, point. It really? <laughs> well, because anyone can extend it. So yeah. they crowdfunded uh, Spite and got pretty far with it. <laughs> I'm going to look it up now and see how far, how far ahead it is. That's so hilarious, though. All right, and it's not a, not even uh, the registrant is not zero uh, x zero. It's actually another like burn address that the last four digits are D E A D dead. Oh right, <laughs> and it's the expiration date is twenty thirty two right now. Twenty forty two. Twenty thirty two, and presumably right. still climbing. Yeah, yeah. Going back to Zodiac, which was the approximate cause of this conversation. Um, because this was something we'd started to talk about well, at the beginning of the year. And I think the opportunity that it opens up is is really powerful. And I'm particularly excited, as you know, about the, the bridge functionality. Because I think that right. DAOs are just so important for, for protocols. Uh, if you've got a tokenized crypto system, I think it's fundamentally going to prove to be a total necessity to have it operated in a decentralized uh, fashion socially in the future. But doing the governance on such an expensive chain is just untenable. So unless that changes significantly, I can't see any way of doing protocol governance without it happening across the chain. So my prediction is that the, the Zodiac bridge is going to be an incredibly heavily used piece of functionality once it gets appropriately integrated into tools like Colony and DAOs right. and so on. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think um, the the other kind of roadblock to that being the case right now is that we're using XDAI's arbitrary message bridge, which right. is effectively like handing over control of your safe to a multisig. You, know, mm -hmm. you have a a relatively small group of bridge oracles can do whatever they want. You know, they can essentially broadcast any transaction they want. They can impersonate mm -hmm. your your account on Origin. And so it's I think given that the bridge oracles are, are a subset of the of the existing delegated proof of stake validators on, on XDAI, I don't think it necessarily adds a ton of trust assumptions, but it is still I think a limiting factor on kind of how big of a system you would want to control with that. Mm -hmm. um, and so like a, a more robust bridging mechanism, I think is really needed for this to, to, to truly take off something like what we talked about at the starts when we were talking about Gnosis chain and, and the potential bridging mechanism there. Magic, right? I don't think that would use ZK magic. That would be effectively like a light client built into the validator client. So there's, there's no need for any zero knowledge magic there. It's just updating the, the kind of Merkle root of uh, putting the, the, the hash of the most recent block in as part of the the most recent block on the other on the corresponding chain as part of the the validators kind of duties so that i think may work well for the kind of specific pathway between uh, then i guess gnosis beacon chain and and mainnet but for other chains like ultimately we want this to work between any two EVM compatible chains or layers or shards or whatever. And so I think that that challenge is, is much more difficult. And yeah, we, we haven't come up with a, a an ideal solution for that yet. There's a handful of potential technologies out there, but none that are production ready and and seem to fulfill all of those needs. Mm. Uh, or fulfill, you know, create a, an environment where we'd be happy to kind of recommend 
large DeFi protocols go and use this to manage their kind of cross-chain stuff. Yeah, I, I am. We're, we're kind of exploring the idea of, of essentially implementing light clients to other chains in a kind of optimistic way. There's a, a recent paper called Ethrelay, which borrows a name from uh, <laughs> a previous Ethrelay in the space. Um, but yeah, it's essentially this idea of a kind of optimistic light client imp implemented in, uh, in Solidity. And when I say optimistic, it just means that you, you only update the block headers when you actually need them. And then there's a kind of challenge period on that, on any updates uh, to the block header so that, yeah, you can uh, optimistically guarantee that it's going to be the correct block header. Right. All, all chains right now, the, the bridges are permissioned, right? Or is maybe Polygon has one that's less permissioned? Uh, I, I mean, it depends that's on Plasma what... And then it, but then it's really slow, right? Yeah, so any any that have like an exit game like that are not uh, permissioned. So yeah, Plasma or, or Optimistic Rollups, CK Rollups, mm -hmm. they they permissionless, but add in other constraints. So obviously, mm -hmm. any anything that's optimistic, then you have this exit game, and and so being able to kind of guarantee the integrity of a message will take a week or two weeks or whatever it is. But it, it really depends on what you're trying to bridge, right? Uh, right, but that's, you're trying to... so that makes it not. That makes it unusable for state, right? For arbitrary messages, you couldn't really, Not really. do that with a it just. Just means you need to wait two weeks for your message, so it's not unusable. It's just really slow, right? But the amount of latency there uh, introduces really, really challenging practical considerations, right? For example, um, if you're doing a an exchange, the the prices that are likely to have moved so much that the initial parameters that you put in no longer make sense yeah so i mean that that i think that specific use case can be solved in other ways like if you just say like i want to swap token x for y this is where gnosis protocol CalSwap is, is really useful in that you don't have to have the same kind of slip tolerance that you would set in a typical dex transaction because the the solvers the system is essentially designed to try to generate a surplus to try to give you the best possible price. And so you can kind of put that order in and then whenever it executes, you'll get whatever the best possible price is at that time. But for for other types of transactions, then yeah, maybe that latency is is legitimately an issue. Or if like if the decision that you're making is is time sensitive in, in other ways, like if it's you need to convert tokens to some other token or you need to pay someone or, or whatever, you know, before some deadline, then yeah, obviously having having really high latency kind of increases how far in advance you have to do that. But I mean, that's to a certain extent DAOs in general, right? Like DAOs are typically well, bad at making hope, quick decisions. I would hope that that is not the future of DAOs. I mean, that's certainly not the future of DAOs that Colony is working towards. So yeah, I, think that, I mean, uh, well, like even in Colony's case, right? You've got so motions and disputes give you at at best right now what a seventy two hour cooldown before something happens. Um, well, that's that's only you... if that's only if the motion if you if you wanted to go via the motions process, right? So, right, it could be that you create the motion and then just wait for the security period to have elapsed, which, as you say, would take seventy-two hours, or indeed whatever you set the motion period to be. But if you wanted to go through a voting process, then you can go through the whole of it in just a few minutes if you can muster the uh, attention of people to do so. 
but I right. think more, more generally, I would see DAOs not requiring that for most of the day-to-day -day operations because you'd have nested domains within them where the sort of absolute authority is pushed to the edges of the organization such that people are able to make instant decisions without requiring consensus building. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and rather the, the sort of step before that is where, is where the governance process takes place. But the teams have smaller pots of funds that get refreshed somewhat regularly that they're able to use on the daily basis. Yeah. And I think, sorry, I, I tweeted about this recently. I think like there's yet another trilemma where essentially you have this, this trade-off between kind of speed, comfort and scope. You know, you can, you can have kind of two of the three of those things. You can, you can make something that is uh, fast and comfortable, but you essentially have to limit the scope of what, of what mm. type of decision can be made. You can make something that is fast and does not have a restricted scope, but you're implicitly or explicitly kind of exposing the doubt to risk. And then you could have something that is, you know, unlimited scope and, and comfortable, but is going to be slow. And I, I don't think that the, what you described there kind of gives you all three of those things it's just you're you're necessarily kind of restricting the scope of what can be done yeah but i think that's i don't think that's just uh, something to do with DAOs. i think that's true of all organizations you know if you want to do a merger with another company uh if you want to right. acquire another company any anything which is big it takes time to do it no, i don't think that's a DAO specific consideration right I think maybe the the difference, at least with some class of transactions, is that, and maybe it's not always a difference, but the the potential in a in a traditional, say, legal system, traditional organization, it, things are more frequently reversible. Maybe you know, in that if something turned out to be, you know, if, I don't know, you move funds from one place to the to another, and it turned out to be the wrong thing to have done, or whatever, then you know, there, there may be avenues for returning them. And that's much less frequently the case in, in a DAO-like organization. That's absolutely true in that you've got recourse to the courts if, if a transaction right. goes awry. Until we have, or unless we ever have a situation where the transactions on a chain are somehow reversible by governance, which seems practically like a horrible idea, a horrible idea. It, it will never, that, that will never be any different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, and I should I say a horrible idea, but I mean, the reality is that that is the case for just about every chain, right? Like they well, can, that, yeah. they can roll back changes, uh, roll back <laughs> state changes. They can change any arbitrary happen. state they want. Yeah, it's happened Especially once when or we twice. Talk about DAOs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's 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 been largely an unpopular way of handling problems, and, and should be avoided at all costs. Apparently, now, I guess yeah. maybe for for reference for for listeners for anyone who's not up to speed on that, the DAO hard fork is an example of this, where the state was kind of arbitrarily changed in response to something that was a pretty catastrophic event. Yeah, if it's the people versus the EVM, the people still win. Right. Yeah, I think this is a like a, a fundamental misunderstanding of a lot of people with 
with blockchain, uh, both inside of and outside of uh, blockchain. That like the the social consensus layer still is the the ultimate decision maker, right? Like, yeah, I mean, the, and I think that's why it's such a polarizing point because some people hate that fact. You know, it would be so nice. Code is law, makes it super simple. It's all you have to look at is the code and everything. Like humans are messy, and you know, let's try to design our systems that they don't count anymore, right? Right. It's not the case. Well, subsequently, subsequent to that, people stopped saying code is law because they realized that smart contracts are not the same as legal contracts. So the analogy didn't apply so well. Yeah. I still feel like I hear people throwing it out there a lot, though. The code really? is law thing. Like, yeah. I mean, it's much less frequent than it used to be, but there's still, still people holding on to it. <laughs> That's funny. Are they, are they all people who are into Ethereum Classic? More than likely, yeah. <laughs> Mainly Barry Silver. Yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think who the last person I saw mentioning it was. So going back to Zodiac, the team behind this currently is you and Kai Kreutler, is it? from? Uh... Yeah, me, Kia and I kind of I Kia, guess, sorry. founded okay. this. No, no worries. I, it's... She, it, it, yeah, it's pronounced differently to how it's spelled. Uh, okay. So it's really easy to, to make that mistake. I still read it as Kai pretty much every time I read it and have to consciously remind myself that it's Kia. Um, but yeah, Kia and I kind of founded, I guess, Gnosis Guild, which is the, the internal team that's kind of stewarding Zodiac. Uh, we're really intending for Zodiac to be much more of a kind of headless entity. Like it's, it's a, philosophy and a, and a kind of standard for building composable DAO tooling as opposed to as opposed to kind of a product and so we didn't want to kind of be the zodiac team i don't think zodiac has a team it's zodiac is a is a thing that people kind of believe in and build toward as opposed to a a specific product or a specific group of people but yeah kia and i and then we we have a handful of others that have since kind of joined and, and started working on it as a uh, designer and uh, front-end dev who's started working on it. And then we have Christopher and Felix who have recently jumped in as well. They're both, they both work and have green to Web3. They're, they're both kind of full stack JavaScript developers and they've they've gotten up to speed with Web3 in, in a remarkably quick time frame. I've been incredibly impressed. And then also we've been working with the folks from Diorg to implement a bunch of the modules. So Cesar and Carlos from Diorg have, have done a bunch of work building. And then just, yeah, various folks from other DAO related projects have been kind of working on different modules as well. So obviously the guys from DAO House built out the safe minion module. There's another project called, it, it was called Toka Walk, just recently renamed itself to uh, Highfold DAO and they built this uh, module called Zilla. And actually we ended up uh, bringing Nathan, the, the kind of founder of that project on board now as uh, a team member at Gnosis Guild as well. And then, yeah, a handful of other projects, Colony obviously, working on, on kind of, uh, Zodiac compatibility, essentially just to enable one or several of the kind of features that we're, we're hoping to encourage DAOs to use. Um, what does uh, yeah. Zilla do? I'm not sure it's I understand kind of a, that one. Yeah, it's just kind of like a general purpose proposal module. So it, it kind of looks to make something similar to uh, to compound slash open Zeppelin governor, 
but have a lot more flexible in terms of, a lot more flexibility in terms of the voting strategy. So compound is, is very opinionated on on what voting looks like, how vote weight is calculated. And Zile just kind of makes that an abstraction and just says like you, you need to uh, basically build a voting strategy or use one of these existing voting strategies and it just needs to kind of conform to this interface to be usable in this in this platform. So it's kind of taking I don't know, maybe it's a it's a hybrid of say open Zeppelin compound governor and uh, snapshot. So like snapshot you have this kind of plethora of different voting strategies that you can pick from and so it's kind of replicating that model but in on-chain governance. I said very interesting. It's really cool to see such a proliferation of new governance experiments happening all at once. Yeah, absolutely. Do you see other things on the horizon for Zodiac that you can talk about? So the thing that uh, we just kicked off a few projects, obviously one is, is trying to build in this compatibility with Colony. So that, that's that's really exciting to me. Again, like the idea of Colonies being able to uh, own and control assets on other networks, I think really is is powerful. Then some of the others, uh, the other one that I'm really excited about is building out uh, secret voting with Macy. So this will probably end up mm -hmm. being a strategy on top of Zilla, but it's, yeah, essentially leveraging Macy, the minimal anti-collusion infrastructure to, to build out secret voting using zero knowledge proofs. So the idea there is that voters input a secret and, and receipt free and this this quality of them makes makes those voting systems kind of less susceptible to various forms of collusion. Yeah, and so I think this is a, a really important step that the DAO ecosystem probably needs to take at some point, just because there's a bunch of really explicit examples of of collusion that kind of already exist in in you know a, a reasonably nascent, reasonably kind of naive <laughs> ecosystem so far, and, I, and I'm sure that that like occurrences of that is just going to continue to, to increase. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's the worst combination of attributes really to encourage that situation to, to come about, right? Because it's technically naive, but with massive stakes. Right. So it's definitely going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like you said, there's, there's been several very explicit examples of it already. The, the, the sellout DAO for, for Moloch that was already built a couple of years ago, more recently. Do, um, can you explain what, what that was? Or is yeah, it? I forget who wrote it off the top of my head, but essentially it was just a, uh, a contract that would let any shareholder of in, in Moloch, like the original Moloch DAO, essentially sell the voting rights that they have with their shares on, on proposals. So it's the, the shares themselves are non-transferable, but you can, you can sell the rights to vote via this, or you can, you can essentially sell off the, the way that you would vote on, on any given proposal via this mechanism. So it was a, so it would basically yeah. be that you get some funds escrowed if you can prove that you voted in a certain way on a certain proposal. Exactly. And given yeah. that the votes are, are transparent on chain, then it's very, very easy, easy to do so. Yeah. That, that receipt is really easy to show. Uh, and then, yeah, more recent example was, what was the, the URL for it? It was something like bribe.curve.dell or something. I can't remember exactly, but it was essentially the, the idea was to convince a bunch of VCurve holders to vote a particular way i think it was built by one of the folks from yearn maybe by andre from yearn and it was just 
Curve has this DAO system for allocating rewards amongst their various pools. And so in order to kind of maximize returns, maximize yield for Yearn, they they set up this thing where they could actually bribe bribe V curve holders to vote in line with the the way that would yeah maximize the the returns for various and so kind of yeah very very explicit bribery and then I think there's been some examples of, of questionable voting in in uh, you know that's less explicitly collusion or less explicitly malicious one one I guess recent example was there was a proposal in the Uniswap DAO for uh, a, a very significant amount of funding. I think it was $20 million or something like mm-hmm. that to the... DeFi uh, Education Fund, right? That was the one, yeah, the DeFi Education Fund. And yeah, I, I guess a whole bunch of university groups all voted for it very mysteriously and very mysteriously had much more vote weight than people expected. And I think there was a, a lot of speculation that some entity had kind of distributed vote weight amongst a bunch of these new university groups and then coordinated around having having them all the, vote for this proposal the allegation that at least i'd seen was that this was this was a cabal of organized by andreessen horowitz whether right. or not there's yeah. any truth to that i have no idea but <laughs> yeah, yeah i have no idea so yeah, yeah a disconcerting uh, event i'm sure for the uniswap team yeah, absolutely. Well, so, I mean, this that. this kind of thing, I think, will just become more and more prevalent as as DAOs proliferate. You know, using technology that enables enables it. Yeah, and so how will received free voting or secret voting prevent that from happening? So it doesn't prevent it; it just changes the game theory, right? So if if you cannot prove how you voted and I want to bribe you, then it becomes a much more trustful relationship. If if I can know how you voted, then I don't have to trust you. I, I can say, you know, vote this way, and if you do, I'll give you X. But if you can't prove it, or if I can't know how you voted, then I have to trust your word on it. Uh, in which case, you as a, a potential recipient of a bribe say, your optimal behavior now becomes accepting the bribe, and then just voting how you want because the briber can't prove how you voted. So mm. your the bribe doesn't actually change your vote. It shouldn't change your behavior in terms of the vote. All it does is yeah, line your pocket and knock at the outcome for the briber. Uh, like that's that's the optimal behavior. Obviously, not everyone will necessarily realize that's the optimal behavior. But yeah, it, it, because it makes it a trustful relationship, it effectively makes it much more costly for a briber to successfully attack the system and and this is true for kind of any type of collusion and so what would the outcome of the vote reveal is all of the attributes of it encrypted so it's only it only renders a let's say it's a binary outcome a yes or no outcome at the end yeah, of it, so or, you... or, or would you know any of the balances or anything like that that have ended up voting yeah so you would be able to see the Outcome. I mean, I guess it depends on the on the circuit, right? On the zk circuit and on the on the system. If if we're talking about kind of the the Macy circuits that I know exist right now and that I am comfortable talking about to a certain extent, then it would expose the amount of votes that went towards each option, 
Uh, and then obviously like the the outcome would be determined by some by by your system in interpreting those votes you could conceivably build the the whole the whole mechanism into that zk circuit so it actually just gives you an outcome rather than any rather than any vote numbers or anything like that but mm -hmm. i'm i'm not aware of any circuits that do that right now with macy at least so essentially you would get with the, with the current circuits you would get the the, the total number of votes you get the aggregate information but not anyone's individual information mm. and so you could you the other thing that you could do like as a as an attacker is bribe based on outcome but that's yeah probably... i was about to say that i mean that's the one thing you still have we offer a bunch of money you'll skew the vote but it, you only have to pay if you actually get the outcome you want yeah but the thing with that is then how do you know who to pay <laughs> right uh, I mean, you know, well, when, whenever we're running elections, knowing your voters, knowing whom to target and advertising, it's part of the business, right? So here we just have a different tool rather than calling them, uh, or sending them your leaflets, you, you offer them payment. Right. It's, which which voters case, are worth investing in? In which case every voter is incentivized to go and sign up for this thing as a as a hedge against their decision not going the way that they want right so it's like the, right. the, the optimal you, behavior is still for them to vote however they want you'd be able to prove um, that you'd voted though at least yeah you could prove that you you voted but you, you could say so like obscure that fact <laughs> yeah you could you could actually i mean you could you could send an invalid vote so you could you could pretend to have voted right um, but you couldn't hide the fact that somebody had at least attempted to participate. I think you probably could as well. Then if you, if you know the values of the outcomes and you know the balance of the accounts that have participated, wouldn't it be possible to, to some degree of confidence, reconstruct what the likely combinations were that resulted in the outcomes being what they were. Oh, I see what you mean. Uh, because like the balance is kind of 18 decimal places. If somebody has like yeah. a really unique, weird skew balance of tokens, then you could say, oh, the person with 0.1478321824 tokens voted yes, because that same decimal is, is that what you mean? Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you'd be yeah. able to calculate which combination of the participants' token balances, if we're using token weights voting, was able to... You might could, be able to engineer some leakage. That. You might yeah. be able to engineer some leakage, but I don't think it's foolproof. And if that were to become an issue, I think it's something you can also easily engineer your way around. Right, right. just by rendering a yes or no outcome rather than showing the balances. For example, well, you're even just simplest. making the balances fuzzier, like mm. reducing the, the, like not showing 18 decimal places, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, or allowing someone to vote both ways. Like I'll use my 10 right. ether to vote yes and my 0 0.04782 ether to vote no. For whatever reason, I might want to do that. But, right. you know, you, there's many ways you could mess around with that. But yeah, it's a fun thought. Is, I think it also implies like, it probably works only only at like beyond some scale. It's probably impossible to to really leak any information, right? Like right. If there's a if there's a small number of voters, then yeah, the the possible combinations manageable. But beyond some 
reasonable number of voters, the possible combinations just balloons out of control. Yeah, but it, it's the same as like, you know, these mixing pools where you try to anonymize your coins. If you put right. in a really weird number of coins in a mixing pool, and then a short while later, that exact same weird number moves out, you know, and somebody's watching, they can, they, you know, sometimes you inadvertently marked. You know. Right. Mm. It's not a proof, but it's evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I, I mean, could definitely well, the, be an issue or there could be some leakage, yeah. I mean, the other side of that is that, yeah, you, you talk about there being a large number of voters, but the reality is that most influence weights, uh, whether it be token holdings, reputation or whatever, is going to obey a uh, power law distribution. And so the majority of the movement is really made by relatively few actors. And you would think that it's going to be much easier to coerce or bribe small number of high value targets than a large number of low value targets. So it would, there's, there's still quite a high degree of possibility of being able to figure out whether or not, or figure out some kind of probability that somebody voted in the direction that was, was asked of them. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm probably. I don't know, at, at some point, then yeah, a, a circuit that doesn't actually reveal that information is probably the solution, like that just spits out yeah. a result. It's going to be interesting to see all of the, how all this plays out, because as you say, we've seen these kind of things happen already, and DAOs are still very, still relatively infrequent or, or, or uncommon, rather, as, uh, at least in terms of those that are operating meaningfully on chain. And so... You know, the incidence of this happening is still relatively infrequent, but it's got to happen more often. Yeah, absolutely. But it's is kind of refreshing that when you're sort of, sort of analyzing a lot of these things for what kind of nefarious activity is possible, what kind of collusion is possible in most everyday life, these are purely academic discussions, whereas in DAOs, they will all actually happen and people actually write right. the optimal bribing contracts and, you know, the, the markets. Yeah. Whilst somewhat depressing, it's also refreshing, you know, but simultaneously it's, you know, you, you can, you can trust the system to be maximally malevolent. Yeah. I mean, I think MEV is a really great example of that, right? Where there's, there's, I don't know, a bunch Minor of extractable like, value, like front running. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. It was like in, in other systems, these are things that you might think about theoretically, but the, the likelihood of them actually happening in practice is. No, is, not at all. I think that's institutionalized. I mean, that's what high frequency trading does half the time. Right. Try to get, yeah, yeah, like, they point. pay millions of dollars to get their computers to one end of a data center. So there's a shorter cable to the exchange so they can front run the others. Like this is <laughs> like, and all those people from high frequency trading, they've got come on to DEXs and, you know, working on, on, on the unique exploits here. But yeah. It's, yeah. That's a good point. The infrequency of it happening or the unlikeliness of it happening or the fact that the majority of people wouldn't do such a thing is not the reason why you have to design the system such that it prevents it, it from just happening. takes one. It only takes one. And it's almost certain to, that that person exists. Have you got any other stuff that you'd like to talk about with regard to Zodiac? Off the top of my head, no. I mean, I'm I'm really looking forward to. I guess what one of the things that we're trying to do right now is is bake this into 
other DAO tooling, essentially just like the ability to easily control a safe. So if, if anyone's listening and, and wants to wants to kind of pick up a bounty to, to bake this into some other DAO tool that doesn't have it yet, then then reach out. We'd love to chat. Obviously we're we're kind of working through some of the DAO tooling in kind of I don't know, order of, of ease and our, our kind of favorites. But yeah, we'd love to see it everywhere. And then outside of that, I'm, I'm really excited just to see more modules being built. I think one of the things that I'm most excited about for kind of the DAO space as a whole is, I don't know, more more frequent use of kind of mechanisms where the emergent, the, the desired outcome is kind of an emergent result of, of uncoordinated actors or uncoordinated inputs, you know, essentially like mechanisms for for creating outcomes as opposed to this kind of crude general purpose governance for, for for kind of making decisions so i think like quadratic funding is a really good example of that where you say like we want to have a well allocated pool of funding to to some group of public goods and and kind of the way that you create that that allocation is is essentially through a bunch of uncoordinated inputs from people acting in their own self-interest by donating to the projects that they value. And so I think this is a really good example of a, of a mechanism where, yeah, where, where that's the case. You kind of engineer an outcome or you kind of decide on an outcome and then use, use this mechanism to, to have it emerge from, from a crowd of inputs. And I think there's, there's a, a huge kind of design space for, for, for modules, for mechanisms to, to achieve all kinds of different outcomes. I think budget box is another really great example of this. I'm really looking forward to seeing a, an implementation of it in the wild at some point, because I think it can be yeah. useful for a whole bunch of things. I think we're, we're hoping to build the smart contracts for that in January. Oh, cool. I think it's, it's basically the next thing that Daniel can get his teeth into. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, I mean, I'd love to see, see that. It, like I, I know for, for, for colonies purposes, right. It's, it's used as a way of essentially deciding how to allocate some fixed pool of funding between, between pots, right. Between teams. Between um, different teams, you know, between different, different priorities. The original right. thinking behind that was that like grants are nice, but grants are not sufficient to get people to iterate on a product towards product market fit. Right. It basically gets you a prototype and yep. then people have to go back and ask for more grant funding and more and, and so on. And it's, it's not a very self-directed course for, for a project. So I hope with budget box was that people could enter their projects into budget box and they could basically be competing with all of the others for a share of a continuous supply of, of funding. So as more yeah. CLNY gets minted, it will be constantly distributed uh, on a sort of monthly basis, uh, between all of the projects building on colony proportional to the value that the community thinks that they bring to the colony network. That's relative to the other projects, right? Right, exactly. So it's kind of like an ongoing pairwise voting of like, do you prefer A versus B, A versus D and so on, getting lots of people to do those things in random and then aggregating all of the, the preferences to a system of leagues that divides the funds 
proportional to a project's place in each league and per league. So league one would have as much funding, let's say, as the two, two leagues in the second uh, tier and then the four leagues in the third tier or something like that. Right. So I'm, I'm interested then as well in like potential applications outside of outside of colonial, like outside of even budget allocation, like just as a mechanism, yeah. I think it's it's really cool. I, I've thought about this a lot for, for ClearFund, like how do we go about ranking recipients or like sorting recipients? You know, like as of right now, we've got, I don't know, low double digits of recipients. So it's easy enough for people to scroll through and, and consume all of them and figure out how they want to allocate their funding. But in future, hopefully that's not low double digits. Hopefully there's you know three or four digits, and it's you know mm. it, it exceeds the point where people can reasonably know all of the projects and consume all of the projects to to decide how to allocate their uh their their funding. And so I think some curation mechanism on that to to provide some kind of reasonable sorting is is probably necessary, even mm. if it's not kind of on chain just at a on the front end yeah there's probably some need to, to provide reasonable sorting options i think budget box might be an interesting mechanism to to do that you know essentially have this kind of people play this budget box game do take a, a random walk through pairwise comparisons and, and kind of the output of that is essentially the order that we that we display all of the projects in this list right there's yeah. more than just order them it actually is a weighted ordering yeah right so in that case, you would st you would still want them to be quadratically funded. You would just want to show them in a particular order in the list. But why would you want that to be different from the amount of funding that they had received as the ordering priority? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I guess there's just a probably different. It, it's different outcome that you might be optimizing for. So, I mean, quadratic funding apparently is the optimal way to allocate funding to public goods, as in it does it in the way that most accurately reflects the, both the preference of and the strength of preference of, of a broad group of people. But I don't know that it's necessarily the best way to, well, it would be kind of self-referential and, and use information that's probably not yet available if you were to try to use that information if you were to try to order the list based on on the kind of quadratic funding results like if the results don't exist yet then we can't use that information to to order the list and so some other mechanism that we can get results from sooner is probably a preferable way to to order the list but also i mean it'd be interesting just to see public goods funding mechanism that uses budget box that'd be great too yeah it's it's a certainly a different way to do it so it's all a question of where the funds come from right i mean i don't know I, there's i think there's well yeah yeah yeah. as in like whether matching funds kind of whether yeah so i think like that's the other really cool thing about uh quadratic funding right is it sets off this kind of flywheel effect where you yeah. you seed it with some some matching funds and those matching funds then kind of incentivize recipients to sign up because they want to get a share of it and then those recipients having signed up kind of go and spread the word to people that they you know want to see and they want support from and it's kind of more beneficial for those supporters to contribute via the quadratic funding round than than directly because your you know your dollar that you contribute through the funding round is always going to give the project more than one dollar 
like how much more is, is variable, but it will always be more. Um, and so like, yeah, as a, as a, as a kind of individual contributor, you're, you're incentivized to contribute via, via quadratic funding as a, as a matching pool contributor or someone who wants to contribute kind of broadly to some section of public goods, you're incentivized to, to put your funding into a quadratic funding matching pool because it's going to elicit contributions from from a bunch of individuals and, and kind of in doing so increase the the total amount of funding that goes to public goods and and those kind of two things just spur each other on so like a practical example there we put about 15,000 into the most recent clear fund round and that flywheel ended up resulting in an additional 15,000 in the matching pool and another 30 something thousand in individual contributions so you know, as if if we were to have just tried to allocate that in a in a more traditional kind of grants council type thing, then we would have allocated fifteen thousand dollars to that group of potential recipients. But because we did it through quadratic funding, the the total was more like sixty thousand. So we kind of forex the impact. Yeah. By using that mechanism. That's awesome. One of the key challenges of of quadratic funding, impressive though its capabilities are is the fact that it, it's not really possible to use in a permissionless environment, right? Because it's vulnerable to civil attack, which is to say, because of the way the influence works as a function of the number of addresses from which the funds are sent, it allows people to get an unfair amount of influence if they can find a way to send their funds from more than one address. So. That's presumably the first challenge that you had to overcome with CLR fund. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's from that point of view, it's, it's, I guess, as permissioned as the, the civil resistance mechanism that you use, we've right. been using bright ID, which is, is quite permissionless, but obviously has some elements of trust in it still, namely in that the, it, it relies heavily right now on, on essentially one bright ID node at some point in future, that will be a, a whole bunch of bright ID nodes. But right now it definitely has that as a, as a kind of point of, of centralization. But in, in terms of like permissionlessness, it's, it's, it's there, it's permissionless to, to sign up and, and verify your account and all that kind of stuff with bright ID, but it's not, it's not totally trustless. So, right. Right. Yeah, uh, it, there there are some challenges to it though as well, and then uh, the other the other part that is has some kind of centralized elements to it in, in ClearFund currently is the coordinator. So we use Macy for these kind of zero knowledge proof collusion resistant outcomes, but in order to kind of generate that, we have there's a trusted actor who is the coordinator who basically runs that computation. So they they have access to all of the information. Right. They can in theory decode all the messages and see how everyone voted, and so that's that's a, a kind of centralized point of trust at the moment that again in, in future should be able to be dispersed. The coordinator should be able to become a multi-party computation, but it's not yet. All steps in the right direction there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, the coordinator is, is challenging right now. We're, we're still processing the outcome for the round, uh, for this last round. We ran into some some hiccups. We kind of made this really deliberate decision to scale ClearFund slowly as we, like, because it was building on top of a bunch of really bleeding edge technology. And then really glad that we did. Like this, this was the biggest round by far 
so far, but it, it pushed Macy to some, some limits uh, in terms of basically we, we started processing the round and realized that it was going to take about a hundred days of nonstop computation to, oh, wow. uh, to get the output. It just exposed some inefficiencies in, in the way that Macy generated the zero knowledge proofs. And so Wei Jay, who's the person who's been doing the, a, a big chunk of uh, Macy's implementation, managed to write a new version of some of the scripts that, that cut that by about 70%. So we're now down to about 30 days and, and we're kind of a little over a week into that. But uh, yeah, future rounds are, are going to have to have some some much more significant improvements to that processing time if it's going to be uh, viable at, at scales. You know, like this was a round with about 6,000 contributors. So, you know, if we want to be able to step that up by orders of magnitude, then we need some pretty significant improvements in the proving time. Is the anonymous voting important in this case? Yes. So Gitcoin's a really good example of this, where there's been a whole bunch of attempts to run various types of rewards for participation. So like mm. a lot of people participate in Gitcoin in the hopes of receiving future airdrops, essentially. Mm. So they'll go and distribute, they'll go and vote for basically every reasonable looking project in or, or contribute some some tiny amount to every reasonable looking project in the in the round in the hopes that some of them will give an airdrop in the future mm -hmm. so like this is i think that specifically i don't think is a huge issue because it it probably cancels itself out like it probably ends up just being like noise in the round and not not changing the outcome all that much or that might kind of right. concentrate the results a little bit more in in the the i don't know more reasonable or more well-known projects. Not but to everybody's benefit if that's happening. Because the, presumably the projects are raising more money. Well, they're, they're raising more money, but it's, it's probably not a significant amount more money. Maybe it is. But I don't know. What's the, what's the downside to it that makes it worth rooting out? So that particular one, I think the downside is that it's it's just skewing the outcome away from allocating funds in a way that is derived from the, the value that these projects give the ecosystem and, and towards distribution that is the, the value that these projects can potentially give to people in the way of an airdrop. So, you know, there, there would be some projects that are clearly never going to give an airdrop. And so they probably would be disproportionately targeted, uh, not targeted by these users. So, you know, like right. say, I don't know, a client team, like an Ethereum client team, any of the, the F2 client teams, F1 client teams, things like that, they are almost certainly not going to do an airdrop. And so mm -hmm. probably none of the airdrop hunters are going to go and contribute to those. And so you end up skewing the results of the round away from those very legitimate public goods projects towards the ones that are maybe more questionable as public goods because they, you know, at some point in future may actually transition into something that is more profit driven or, you know, like has some kind of token mm -hmm. economics baked into it. So I think that's, that's the kind of the bad outcome that's, that's a result of that. But then the other part is that there's been some legitimate attempts at just more explicit bribery uh, and collusion from these where like you've had people offer explicit rewards, like I will send you X if you contribute more than Y to my, my project. There, there was one point where someone was, was trying to kind of basically bake it into their checkout flow in an online store. So I was like, you, you check out, you buy a t-shirt or something and then um, you 
from there get booted over to to drop an extra contribution into the the round and then you know you get a discount or something on on the online store purchase and then there's also been a bunch of examples of um kind of groups of people essentially just colluding around voting for some project that kind of disproportionately benefits that that specific community as opposed to the community as a whole so essentially trying to extract funding from the round Right, I see. Yeah, those those are some almost philosophical challenges, right? Because the extent to which those are a problem, I guess really depends where the funds are coming from and the intention of the funds. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if the intent is like, I mean, if it's just purely coming from, right, if the, it's a problem on the assumption that there's also match funding. Which I suppose is the the fundamental value proposition of quadratic funding. So, right, yeah. If there's no matching funds, then it, it, people can spend then, their money however they want. But if they yeah. if they're <laughs> using using that funding to to try to allocate some other pool of matching funds, then yeah, I think that's where you run into this philosophical yeah. issue. And I think there is a there is a fuzzy line between like coordination collusion, right? Right. Where, yeah. You know, it, it may just be that you have like, I guess. At what point does coordination become collusion? You know, you you have a project that is a public good, and you announce on your Discord server, "Hey, everyone, come and you know support our project on Gitcoin Grants or support our project on ClearFund." You know, at what point does that yeah. turn into collusion? Like that feels very legitimate, but you know, right. there, there's a there might be a point at which it, it crosses a line. You know, if you're if you're I don't know. Trying if you're baking, I I would say like the point where you start like baking, baking some kind of rewards or or some kind of additional incentive on top of that to push people towards contributing to your project specifically, is where it starts to feel like some form of collusion. Right, which from um, the perspective of something like Gitcoin would be, would be resolvable by them just saying. If we catch people doing this kind of thing, then they'll be removed from the process. Right, and that's that's exactly how they have handled it. And so, like they right. they have the the ability to do that because it's a permission system. Right, yeah. The the decision on how to actually allocate the funding is can be kind of modified within within some bounds after the fact. You know, they, they the round finishes and they tally up the votes and they can do a bunch of analysis on. How how the votes uh, went and which uh, which projects seem to be legitimate or if anyone any of them seem to have a bunch of spam contributions and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff uh, and then yeah modify the, that outcome after the fact for something like ClearFund that's intended to be a bit more permissionless then that stuff has to kind of happen up front and and that's where the, the kind of collusion re- resistant voting mechanism becomes really important. Yeah, that makes it some sense. Well, Oren, we have taken up quite enough of your time. I think this has been a really interesting conversation as ever. And uh, yeah, thank you very, great. very much. Yeah, thank you. This has been uh, a ton of fun. I always enjoy chatting with both of you. Yeah, good to hear from you again. Great. Thanks, Oren. Yeah, you as well. Cool. Thank you for listening to the Collectively Intelligent Podcast. We'd greatly appreciate a review in your favorite podcast player. And if you want to stay in the loop even further, follow us on Twitter at Join Colony. Thanks again.